0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. So today's topic is Diet and Pharmacotherapy for Obesity. We are delighted to have Catherine Saunders with us today. And to introduce her, uh, uh, we have one of our own, John Batsis. John is an Associate Professor of Medicine. He does many things, including research in sarcopenia and the elderly, He is uh, in charge of helping to facilitate the research of our weight and wellness center. He's the director of the research programs there and uh, a man about town. John, why don't you come up and talk to us about Catherine. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you, Rich, for the uh, introduction. And it's a really great privilege uh, privilege and pleasure to introduce to you Catherine Saunders, who will be presenting this morning's Grand Rounds. Uh, Catherine really knows this area very well. She is a Dartmouth College uh, grad, uh, having completed her BA actually in three years time uh, when she was here. And she was a presidential scholar while at the college and also a women in science scholar. Uh, She also is familiar with Dartmouth-Hitchcock, having worked as a research assistant uh, here uh, prior to moving on to the Harold Hughes Institute and working there for a few years. She then, importantly, pursued her medical degree at the Whale Cornell uh, College of Medicine in New York City and uh, then pursued her internal medicine uh, residency there. she took a few years of a hiatus, and we heard a lot about her travels uh, uh, last night uh, prior to uh, returning to cornell and She completed one of only five programs that are fellowship that have a fellowship training in obesity medicine here in the united states uh, and it 's interesting to note that there are less than twenty Uh, fellowship-trained obesity specialists here in our country. And uh, we're lucky to have her as one of them here present to us today. She's an assistant professor of clinical medicine. Uh, Her interests really revolve around pharmacotherapy and she's, she's an expert and master of that. She really plays an active role in teaching uh, ed- an education, and uh, she has over 25 publications to her name uh, at this stage of her career. Uh, we met actually uh, just over a year ago uh, at the Obesity Society, and she really plays an active role in, our, in the major national society that uh, represents obesity and its complications. Um, She's a member of the National Clinical Committee and uh, really has taken uh, a forefront in uh, assisting in developing patient pages for the journal Obesity and is recently now on a task force that will be putting out a position paper on inappropriate therapies in obesity medicine. So on uh, behalf of Dartmouth-Hitchcock, we welcome you and uh, welcome back to the Upper Valley.
1: Thank you very much for the introduction, John. Thank you for having me here today. Thank you, Rich. Um, It's a pleasure to be back at Dartmouth. Um, Very fun. My old stopping ground. Nice to see Lee Witters from my Bio 2 class and some of his students today. So thank you for joining us. Um, I'm going to be talking to you today about um, weight management 101. Um, uh, My title is Diet and Pharmacotherapy for Obesity. I have no disclosures, and I'll be talking about off-label use of metformin. I'm sure we've all seen the CDC graphs or the CDC uh, maps showing obesity prevalence. This one came out in the last few weeks, and what's really striking about this uh, latest version is that we now have not a single state where there's less than 20% prevalence of obesity. So we've really passed a new threshold. Um, It's an alarming rate of obesity, and what's actually more alarming than that is the projection for the future. So currently, 38% of our country is obese, but the projection is that by 2030, almost 50% of our country will be obese. So huge challenge for all of us as practitioners, and what I'm hoping to talk about today is what obesity is, why it's a disease, Um, and how we go about treating obesity as a disease. So my learning objectives today are to understand how to approach a patient who comes to the office with obesity, or a patient who you see in the hospital with obesity, um, how to recommend dietary strategies, The second thing I'll be talking about is the idea of drug-induced weight gain. So 15% of the obesity epidemic can be attributed to prescription drugs. Um, These are medications that we're prescribing to our patients, medications that they're buying over-the-counter. But 15%, that's a huge, huge number um, of of obesity that is potentially uh, avoidable. And then the third thing we'll be talking about is pharmacotherapy for obesity. And this is what our center really specializes in because unfortunately for the majority of patients, as we've all seen over and over again, unfortunately diet and exercise are not always enough and we need other strategies to help with weight loss. So my patient, Allison, came to see me as an initial visit about a year ago. She is a 54-year-old woman with... Uh, class two obesity. She had a very, very long history of struggling with her weight, doing many, many different things to try to lose weight. She had tried intragastric balloons, she had tried an inpatient program, medications, she did Weight Watchers many, many times, was able to always lose a good amount of weight, 30, 40 pounds, but each time she regained all the weight that she had lost. So she initially, she ultimately underwent a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass in 2000, the time she did the bypass, her weight was almost 300 pounds. The average weight loss for a ruin y gastric bypass is about 33%, so a third of somebody's body weight. She did tremendously well. She lost about 50% of her body weight. She got down to a weight of 150 pounds over a year, which is the normal projection. Um, but then, over the next several years, she got married, had kids stopped focusing on diet so much, and regained a significant amount of her weight. So when I saw her last year, she was 207 pounds, uh, BMI category, uh, class 2 obesity. So here is the beginning of her weight graph, and I'll continue to add on to this um, throughout the course of the next hour. Um, This X-axis is not to scale because these are just the data points that I have, but you can see her high weight, her low weight, and then the weight where she came to see me in the office last year. In terms of her past medical history, she was very emotional when I first met her because she had really been ignoring her weight, ignoring her her medical um, condition for many years before I saw her, but had recently seen her primary care doctor who diagnosed her with um, new-onset or nuance it to her, diabetes, with a hemoglobin A1C of 8.5. She was hesitant to use too much medication, so she was on a very low dose of metformin. She also had hypertension and was on atenolol, which you may say is not an appropriate choice for her diabetes. We would want her to be on an ACE inhibitor more likely, um, but that's what she was on when I met her. Um, and then for depression, she had been started on Paxil several years before. So an example of... Some drug-induced weight gain she had gained tremendously on the Paxil, but she hadn't really connected that the medication was uh, contributing to her weight. Uh, Other medical problems were irritable bowel syndrome and kidney stones. So in the few months before I saw her, while she was waiting to come in and see me, she started to change her diet. She cut out fast food. She cut out sugary drinks. She was able to lose a few pounds, but then she uh, reached the phenomenon of the weight plateau, which we'll talk about a little bit. I'm sure everybody here is familiar with patients starting to lose weight or starting to lose weight yourself, reaching a point where you you get more hungry and cannot lose any further weight. So she reached a weight plateau relatively quickly um, and was describing significant hunger and cravings. I wish I had an hour this morning to talk about why obesity is a disease and the physiologic processes that go into um, our body's significant defense of our high body weight. Um, I unfortunately don't have enough time to get into all of that, but I'll use this study as an example of of our body's uh, really defense mechanisms against starvation and why that leads to our regaining weight when we start to lose weight. So this was a study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2011. They took 50 participants and enrolled them in a 10-week weight loss program. At the end of the 10 weeks, the average weight loss was 14%, and they took a look at the hormones that were involved in obesity. So leptin is something I'm sure most people have heard of. It's one of the hormones that signals back to the brain, telling the brain how full we are, our level of satiety, how much fat we're storing. So what happens is when these patients lost 14% of their body weight, their leptin levels reduced disproportionately. So they lost 14% of their body weight, but leptin level went down by 65%. And the reason why this disproportionate reduction is so important is that the brain then gets the signal that the body is 65% weight reduced when it's really only 14% weight reduced. So what that means is the body thinks it's starving, the brain kicks in to make people more hungry, uh, make people think more about food, Other physiologic things happen in the body where the metabolic rate slows down. So, when you do the same exercise at a high weight as a low weight, you burn fewer calories at a lower weight. And basically, the body does everything it can to hold on to every calorie. So, this is why we have the phenomenon of the weight plateau and why so many patients lose weight to just regain the weight pretty soon after that. So, what do we do about obesity? The cornerstone of everything we do is diet, exercise, and behavioral modification. We'll talk a lot today about diet and behavioral modification. Unfortunately, I don't have time to talk about exercise, but it is a very important component of everything that we do. Um, And then, as I mentioned, unfortunately, this is not enough for most of our patients. So we ultimately use medications, devices, and or surgery to help patients lose weight and keep the weight off. Um, We will talk today about medications. Again, I don't have time to get into devices and surgery, but those are important components as well. So in terms of Allison's diet, we spend a lot of time with patients talking to them about the details of what they're eating. It doesn't look so bad when you first look at it, but let's go over the details. So for breakfast, she was eating oatmeal or Cheerios. For lunch, a sandwich or pizza. For dinner, pasta uh, or chicken with vegetables and rice. She was having some fruit and cheese and crackers as snacks, and then for drinks, some sugary drinks, so some sugar in her coffee, green juice, and 10 beers a week. What you'll notice here is that she's eating a lot of carbohydrates, so her diet could be a lot worse. She was you know, not eating any fast food. Um, she had cut out soda, but still eating a lot of carbohydrates, which for her, as someone who has uh, significant insulin resistance, uh, was not a, a good thing to be doing. So... Question one, and I'll need some audience involvement here with a show of hands. Um, Question one, which of the following dietary strategies are more likely to help Allison curb her hunger and or lead to weight loss? I'll read all the answers and then I'll ask you guys what you think. A, finding a diet she'll adhere to. B, eating more carbohydrates with breakfast. C, eating protein and vegetables before carbohydrates during a meal. And then D is A and C, and E is all of the above. So who thinks, with a show of hands, who thinks A? Who thinks B? Okay, some takers for both of those. Who thinks C? Some takers. Who thinks D? Most people. Okay. (laughs) And who thinks E? Okay. Okay, so pretty well. Um, Let's look at the data. So this study that was published in JAMA about uh, 12 years ago looked at the idea of adherence. And they looked at four different diets, so Atkins, Zone, Weight Watchers, and Ornish. And what you'll notice on the left, and this is something that we see in really any intervention that we do in our field, there's tremendous, tremendous variability. So with each of these diets, you'll see a huge scatter from people losing at least 20 kilos of body weight, which is very significant, to people even gaining at least 10 kilos of body weight. So huge, huge, huge difference. So if you look at the average, it really doesn't look very significant at all. But on the right side, if you look at the data in a slightly different way, what they did was they asked patients about dietary adherence. And they had people rate on a scale of 1 to 10 how easy or hard the diet was to adhere to. And what they found was that makes sense, the easier the diet is to adhere to, the more weight loss you have. So very intuitive, very obvious, but we really need to work with patients to see what their preferences are and figure out something not that we're telling them to do that they're going to get sick of and going to stop very soon, but something that they can really continue as a lifelong thing. That being said, we have a lot of success with the idea of a low-carbohydrate or low-glycemic-index diet, and this is not by any means the only diet that makes sense. But since most of our patients are insulin-resistant, we tend to recommend a lot of low-glycemic-index diets. Um, And if you remember back from biology class, um, the idea of glycemic index refers to how high blood sugar goes up in response to what we're eating. So if we have something with a high-glycemic index like white bread, our blood sugar spikes very high. Whereas if we have a salad that's a food that's low glycemic index, we don't have as much of a sugar spike. And then an example of something in the middle of something like whole wheat bread that spikes our sugar a bit, but not as high as white bread. And the implication of this, I explained to my patients that it's like when you give kids sugar and they have a sugar high, what happens after the sugar high? They crash. So when you have the high, high, and then the low, low with the red, you have more hunger and more cravings, so it's much harder to make better food choices, control what you're eating, whereas if you eat foods that are lower in glycemic index, these fluctuations are not as significant, and it's much easier to feel satiated, make better food choices, not get so hungry and not have all of these cravings. So a time of day when this is particularly important is with breakfast. And this, was, this is a pretty old study. It's from 1999, but I think it's, it's beautifully done, and it really exemplifies why eating protein in the morning can make a huge difference. And we see patients get into so much trouble eating carbohydrates with breakfast and then having it throw off their entire day. So in this study, what they did was they looked at three different breakfasts, so a low GI, a medium GI, and a high GI option. The low GI option was, uh, consisted of eggs, vegetables, a little bit of fruit, and then on the other side of the spectrum, high GI was instant oatmeal. So very easy for our body to break down, doesn't have to work as hard, really spikes blood sugar. And then somewhere in the middle was the steel-cut oats. And what we see is on the left that five hours after, um, five hours after people had the um, low GI diet, so the eggs, Five hours later, people were much less hungry than on the day when they had either of the other oatmeal options. And on the right side, you can see that five hours later, on the day when people had the instant oatmeal, the high GI meal, they were significantly more hungry, or they are significantly eating more, so cumulative energy intake was higher, so eating more than with either of the other two options. So just changing around people's breakfast to really eat fewer carbohydrates and try to have high protein with breakfast can make a very big difference. These are some exciting studies that we're doing at our center, the idea of food order. Um, We've done a series of these studies now where we have the same group of people come in on two different days and eat the exact same meal but in opposite order to take a look at the effect of the order of the food on blood sugar and satiety and eating subsequently. And what we did in this first iteration of the study was we had the people come in the first day and have bread and orange juice first, so carbohydrates first, and then 15 minutes later, chicken and vegetables. On the other day, they started with chicken and vegetables first, 15 minutes later, they had bread. And this really exemplifies what happens at restaurants, because restaurants with the bread basket know exactly what they're doing trying to get us to eat more throughout the whole meal. So option one is bread basket at the restaurant. Option two is taking the bread, putting it on the side, eating everything else first, and then having your bread at the end of the meal if you still want it. But in this study, we actually did make people finish everything, so it was a fair comparison. Even if they weren't hungry anymore, they still had to eat it all. (laughs) Um, So what we saw was, Um, We looked at their blood sugar for two hours after um, they ate. And in this first study, we unfortunately didn't go out for three hours. We didn't know what we would end up seeing. So in subsequent studies, we did go out for three hours. But here, what we see is that after an hour, on the day when they had the carbohydrates first, blood sugar went up almost twice as high as on the day when they had the carbohydrates last. So pretty significant difference, considering that it's the exact same meal, just eaten in a different order. Um, And what we did see in the subsequent study is that the lines do cross Um, And I didn't include this data because it's a lot of information But in the subsequent study we actually did a sandwich as well And as you would expect eating everything at the same time was somewhere in the middle So that's that's kind of the halfway point (laughs) So better to have a sandwich, but better to just not have the bread or have it at the end of the meal so what we explain to patients is that you know this is a way of, if you still want to have carbohydrates, have carbohydrates. Just have them at the end of the meal so you can kind of hide them from your body. So now looking back at this question, it's pretty clear. Um, we don't want more carbohydrates with breakfast, so B is wrong, um, and A, uh, the idea of adherence, and C, this food order makes sense, and the answer is A and C. So in terms of what I told Allison, we talked about changing around her breakfast to have more high-protein options for lunch and dinner and for snacks. She was uh, following the food order, and we cut out some of her sugary drinks and cut down her alcohol a little bit. So let's move on to the next topic, the idea of drug-induced weight gain. And, again, this is something that we spend a significant amount of time with our patients talking about because this is something that's really avoidable. So when I first meet with patients, I ask them not only medications that they've been prescribed, but also medications that they're taking over the counter. And unless you ask, patients don't always offer up this information. And a lot of people, for example, are taking Benadryl to help them sleep, but they wouldn't think to tell you that because it's not something that they're filling at the pharmacy and and being prescribed by another doctor. (coughs) Okay, so um, the idea of recognizing medications that are problematic for weight and switching out these medications if possible for medications that are more weight neutral. And if there are alternatives in the same class that have the same benefit, but can actually be weight losing medications, that's something that can be um, a great strategy to help patients lose weight. So in terms of the medications that Allison was taking, um, she was on metformin for type two diabetes, atenolol for her hypertension, which unfortunately was not well controlled when I saw her, and paroxetine or Paxil for depression. So next question for the audience, um, which of these medications are more likely to lead to weight gain? A, metformin, B, atenolol, C, paroxetine, D, both atenolol and paroxetine, or E, all of the above? So with a show of hands, who thinks A? Great. Who thinks B? Okay. Who thinks C? Okay. So a lot of takers for C. And who thinks D? Great. So a lot of takers. And then E? Okay. couple people. So let's look at the information. So we published this article um, that that ended up being the cover story of the Journal Family Practice last year, talking about the idea of drug-induced weight gain in exactly these three categories of medications. So um, antihypertensives, anti-diabetic medications, um, and medications for depression. And we created a few tables looking at which agents within each category are more or less problematic. So in terms of anti-diabetic medications, Our goal is to really get patients off of medications that are more problematic. So insulin can be extremely weight-promoting, depending on how it's used. Uh, TZDs, sulfonylureas, all of those medications can put on a significant amount of weight. We've seen people gain 30 pounds in a matter of a month, two months, so not much time, very, very fast weight gain. So what we try to do is to reduce the dose or stop these medications, if possible, by using medications that... Um, on the right side, the weight-losing medications like GLP-1 agonists, a new medication, uh, the SGLT-2 inhibitors, metformin, which our patient was taking but not at such a high dose, so we increased her dose of metformin, um, and a medication called pramlintide or Simlin, which we use sometimes for patients who are on insulin to reduce the insulin dose. Um, the c- class of medications in the middle the weight-neutral medications, we sometimes use DPP-4 inhibitors or some of the other ones um, if we can't use the ones on the right. In terms of antihypertensive medications, so she was on Atenolol, which for diabetes wasn't a great choice anyway. Um, so ideally, we like to switch people off of beta blockers or alpha blockers, which can be problematic for weight, and onto medications like ACE inhibitors, ARBs, um, even CCBs and um, uh, thiazides can be can be better for weight. Um, if a patient needs to be on a beta blocker for some reason, if they have coronary artery disease, if they have an arrhythmia, and a beta blocker is indicated it's not just for hypertension, even switching from a non-selective beta blocker like metoprolol or atenolol to a beta blocker like carvedilol, can actually make a difference. I've had patients with just that change come back and say, wow, I feel a lot less hungry, I'm not really doing much differently, but my weight is just starting to come down. So that can be very gratifying. Um, and then finally, antidepressants, as everybody knows, are huge, huge, huge offenders in terms of weight gain. So pretty much almost all of the antidepressants can be very problematic. We've seen patients gain as much as 100 pounds in a matter of a month, two months, three months on Abilify and medications like that. Uh, The medication that our patient was taking, Paxil, is one of the worst or probably the worst SSRI, so switching her from a medication like Paxil to something more weight neutral um, was a good intervention. Um, So the two medications, the two SSRIs that are thought to be more weight neutral are fluoxetine or Prozac, um, and Zoloft or sertraline. So the short-term data actually for these medications shows that sometimes they're actually even associated with weight loss. More long-term, they can be associated with a little bit of weight gain, but usually not as much as many of the other options. Um, And then finally, on the right, our favorite antidepressant when we can use it is uh, bupropion or Wellbutrin. And this is the only antidepressant that has been consistently associated with weight loss. So when it's appropriate for a patient's depression, we try to use it when we can. It's not always appropriate. People have very, very different forms of depression. For some patients who have depression along with anxiety, sometimes bupropion can be a little bit too activating. So it really depends on the individual patient, but we use this when we can. So looking back at her medications, the answer is both atenolol and paroxetine. Um, So I did end up switching her from atenolol to lisinopril, um, and we switched her from paroxetine to fluoxetine. You may ask why I didn't switch her from paroxetine to bupropion. The reason was that when I first met her, her blood pressure was pretty high in the office, not well controlled. So I wanted to wait until we got her blood pressure under better control. In addition to... Optimizing a patient's medication regimen. We spend a lot of time talking about the idea of self-monitoring. So having patients weigh themselves once a week, if they're losing, wonderful. It can be very motivating. If they're not, then it's a way of picking things up quickly instead of having them just... You know, slowly gain 30 pounds and not realize what's happening over time. So this is an intervention that I tell patients for the rest of their lives, it's such a good idea to just be diligent about it and weigh themselves once a week. Um, the data actually shows that the more the better, up to once a day. So if patients want to do once a day, that's, that's fine. Um, but once or twice a week usually is pretty sufficient. Um, Food log, most patients find it to be extremely annoying. I'm sure anyone in the room who's tried to do this finds it very, very tedious. Um, But it gives patients very good feedback, especially people who aren't as familiar with the macronutrient composition of what they're eating, just put it, you know, spending a couple days doing a free app like My Fitness Pal or Lose It, putting in different foods that they're normally eating, seeing how many carbohydrates, how much protein, uh, things like that are in different food can be really, really eye-opening. So both of these two things, the, the weekly weights and food log, I really try to have most of my patients um, follow. Dietitian. if patients are willing, we have all of our patients meet with a dietitian on a regular basis. Um, and then finally, we sign up all of our patients for the idea of re- remote monitoring. And I think this actually was the, the chart from, from this patient, Allison. Um, so they enter their weight once a week or however much they want to be on the site. Um, and then we can see from a distance how they're doing. So it's a nice way of holding them accountable and having them able to kind of communicate with us through that. So in follow-up, I ended up having Allison come into our office once a month. Um, She either met with me or the dietician. We titrated up her metformin to the full dose, so she had been taking 500 milligrams twice a day. We increased her to 1,000 milligrams twice a day slowly, so her stomach was able to tolerate it. Um, We weaned her off lisinopril. So as she lost weight, her blood pressure came down, which was very exciting. So that's actually another important point. As patients lose weight, a few things that we need to keep a close eye on are TSH. So sometimes we need to adjust the dose of Synthroid as patients lose weight, especially if they're losing quickly. And the second um, is blood pressure. Um, I tell patients to look out for orthostatic hypotension, especially if their blood pressure is well controlled. Her blood pressure was very high when I saw her, so we watched it come down nicely and were able to wean her off lisinopril. Um, At her four-month visit, she was down 48 pounds, so she had gone from 207 to 159. Her BMI was now 30. Um, Her blood pressure, as I said, was normalized, and her A1C was down in the pre-diabetes range, so exciting reduction in her A1C. But she reached another weight plateau, which is inevitable, her body kind of fighting back and pushing up against um, her best efforts to push down on her weight. So let's take a look at her weight graph. You can see where we added the metformin and talked about diet and exercise during the initial visit. And then these were the, this was her weight loss here. And then when I saw her in February, she had been at a weight plateau for about three weeks. So next topic is the idea of using medication. And we don't use medication until we have to get there. I always, always, always start with the idea of diet, exercise, lifestyle intervention, optimizing uh, medication regimen. so reducing the idea of drug-induced weight gain. We do end up starting medication for most of our patients because by the time they come and see us, they're really frustrated. They've tried absolutely everything. So um, we do use medication somewhat early in the course of um, when we see patients. So anti-obesity medications are FDA-approved for patients with a BMI of 30 or above, so class one obesity or above, um, as well as patients who are overweight, so a BMI of 27 or above with weight-related comorbidities, including hypertension, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, and sleep apnea. The uh, six medications that are FDA-approved for weight are the ones listed here. So fentramine has been around for a long time. There are several brand names for fentramine. Orlistat is actually a medication I'm not going to talk about today just because we really rarely ever use it. Um, It's a lipase inhibitor, so it prevents absorption of about 30% of ingested fat. So the side effects of that are unfortunately uh, potentially very unpleasant gastrointestinal side effects, so very, very hard to tolerate for many patients. The one time that we actually use Orlistat or one of – only times, unless patients want to try it, that's fine. Um, is when patients are losing weight. Often people can get very constipated, so orlistat can be a nice option to add on when people are constipated and losing weight and still want to lose more weight. So that's the one caveat. But especially for a patient like Allison, orlistat would not be a great option um, because uh, she already has irritable bowel syndrome, so it would likely be pretty hard for her to tolerate. The four medications that have been FDA approved in the last five years are the remainder here. So fentermine topiramate, also known as Qsimia, lorcaserin, also known as Belvic, Naltrexone bupropion, also known as Contrave, and finally Loraglutide, um, the high dose of Loraglutide 3 milligrams, um, brand name is Saxenda. So question three, and this may be hard if you're not familiar with some of these medications, but I'm gonna do a recap of this patient who now is down to a BMI of 30 with very well-controlled type 2 diabetes on metformin. She's off medication for her hypertension. She's now on fluoxetine for depression. She has irritable bowel syndrome and kidney stones. So which of these four medications would be the best option if you wanted to start a medication for this patient? So A is lorcastrin or Belvic, B, Liraglutide sexenda, C, orlostat alizenical, and D, ventramine topiramate combination known as Qsymia. So let's take a look and we'll come back. Actually, let's have people vote. So <laughs> A, who thinks lorcastrin would be a good option for her? Not too many takers. People may not be as familiar with lorcastrin as some of the other ones. Um, B, Liraglutide or sexenda? Couple takers, okay. Um, C. Orlistat. I don't think anyone's going to raise their hand because I just told you that we really don't use it, especially for irritable bowel syndrome, so I'm glad nobody raised their hand. And D. Phentermine, Topiramate, or Qsimia. So a couple people. Okay. Good. So let's start with metformin. This is not an FDA-approved anti-obesity medication, but I'm mentioning it because We really use metformin as one of our first line medications, especially in somebody like Allison who has significant insulin resistance. Um, We find that patients feel less hungry, they feel full faster on metformin. It works in a variety of metabolic ways to level out blood sugar. Um, You can see here on the left, this is uh, data from the DPP trial, showing that at 10 years after patients initiated metformin, um, the weight loss from metformin was durable Um, and it was related to adherence. And then on the right, this is from a meta-analysis looking at a series of studies all um, looking at metformin among patients without diabetes, so metformin to prevent diabetes, um, and it showed that it was favorable for weight loss. So we are very excited about metformin, especially because now there are all of these new studies going on, or one major new study right now, I think at Albert Einstein at Penn, looking at longevity with metformin. So it's going to take a little while for us to see the results of that study, but um, we're excited about the anti-cancer properties and the potential benefit with other conditions as well. So the oldest medication is fentramine. Phentermine has been around since the late 50s. When it was initially approved, it was only approved for short-term use, so for only three months. We see a lot of patients who come to our practice who've seen primary care doctors or other um, practitioners who've agreed to give them Phentermine or wanted to give them Phentermine, but we're really following the label. And they did well, lost weight for three months, but then it was stopped because it's only FDA-approved for three months, and then the patients would regain most of their weight. So we do use fentramine. Um, it's off-label use technically for longer periods of time because it is FDA-approved in combination with topiramate for longer periods, so we're comfortable doing this. But again, um, this is off-label use. Um, so fentramine is a adrenergic agonist. It's a Schedule IV-controlled substance. Um, The dosing ranges from a new formulation that we have available now called Lomera, which is 8 milligrams, to um, a full-dose tablet, which is 37.5. With all of the medications we use, we try to really stick with the lowest dose possible because we're trying to reduce the side effect profile, and often it's not necessary to use higher doses of many of these medications. So with uh, Ventramine, before we had Lomira, we were literally prescribing 37.5 milligrams and having patients take a quarter of a pill a day. Um, Patient... uh, Physicians who, are not, who don't use as much metformin we find use a lot higher doses, but the data really shows that going up to these high doses isn't necessarily more effective, and we see more side effects. So we try to really stay low um, unless there is a benefit to increasing the dose. The side effects of fentramine are everything that you would expect with an adrenergic agonist, so it's not something that I would choose as first line for older patients, for patients who um, have any heart disease at all, Um, patients who have anxiety, hyperthyroidism, uh, things like that, where they wouldn't tolerate something stimulating. (laughs) So fentramine topiramate, otherwise known as Qsimia, this is an exciting medication. This was uh, approved in 2012, and um, what's interesting about Qsimia is, as I explained (laughs) about using low doses, The idea of this is to use low doses of two medications to work synergistically together um, and get more weight loss than the two components um, alone. So we do see synergistic and more weight loss than with just the individual components. Um, There are four different doses, and we do a dose titration, staying as low as we can. Um, There's a starting dose, and then two main doses and then a high dose, which we really rarely ever use. Um, uh, Cusimia is a combination of fentramine, which I just talked about, and topiramate, which is a neurostabilizer medication um, used by many neurologists for epilepsy, This was FDA-approved in the 90s, and also for migraines, FDA-approved in the early 2000s. So for patients who also have migraines, this can be a very nice option. Um, We see patients really um, describe fewer migraines when they're on QSIMIA, so that can be very nice. Um, Out of all of the medications we have, QSIMIA gives us the best weight loss on average, so very effective medication, but it can be hard to tolerate. Um, one, with a patient like Allison um, who has kidney stones, I wouldn't choose this as my first line because topiramate is associated with kidney stones. Um, phentermine, all of the adrenergic side effects can be problematic. Um, and then finally, um, you have to be very careful in women of childbearing age, um, and Vivus, the company that makes Qsymia, has a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy um, to prevent unwanted pregnancies, um, because topiramate is a teratogen. So we do pregnancy tests, and we make sure that patients are on birth control if they're going to be on QCMF. The next medication is lorcasterin. People may not be as familiar with lorcasterin. It's also called Belviq. It was also FDA-approved in 2012. It's a serotonin 2C receptor agonist. So you may remember the medication Fenfen that was taken off the market. One of the, the reason why fenfen was taken off the market is because fenfluramine, the component other than the fentramine component, was a serotonin 2B receptor agonist. And the serotonin 2B receptors are on cardiac um, heart valves. So um, there were valvular complications um, of uh, fenfluramine, so that was taken off the market. But uh, lorcastrin works in the same way. It's a serotonin agonist. It works as an appetite suppressant, and it binds directly to the brain and does not look like it affects the heart valves at all. In the Phase three trials, we didn't see any um, excess valvulopathy, um, and there's an ongoing trial right now in <laughs> patients who are at elevated cardiovascular risk. Um, I would not use lorcasterin in patients who are on other serotonergic medications because there's a potential risk of serotonin syndrome. So for our patient Allison, currently on floxetine, it's not the best option. Um, two different doses, so 10 milligrams twice a day, or there's a new 20 milligram XR formulation that's sometimes easier for patients, just to take one pill instead of two. Some patients describe when they switch over to that, it doesn't work as well, so it really is individual. Something that's interesting about lorcaserin, which is something that we see with all of the medications. Some of these medications work for some patients and don't work for other patients. And unfortunately, we're not at a place yet where we can really personalize genetically um, which medications we're using. Um, So I tell people with Bellevique that they're they're responders and they're non-responders. So either people come back and they really notice that they feel less hungry, they're losing weight, it's working well, or they're like, what did you give me? This is nothing. So it's really, with Bellevique, it's really fascinating to see the non-responders and the responders. Generally, it's a very well-tolerated medication. Out of all the medications we have, it probably has the fewest side effects. Um, Most common side effect is just a headache sometimes. And then on the right side, you can see, um, which is an exciting feature of many of the medications we use, um, the idea that there are all of these secondary endpoints with the medication. So in all the phase three trials, we were not only looking at weight loss, but other secondary endpoints like lipid parameters, waist circumference, choles- uh, I said that cholesterol, um, uh, what else? Uh, Uh, Weight-related quality of life, CRP, A1C, insulin resistance, so exciting that we have improvements of many of these parameters instead of just weight. So the idea of using one medication to get patients off potentially several other medications um, can be very exciting. Next medication is naltrexone bupropion, and so this is our second uh, example of a combination medication. As opposed to cuscimia, where we actually see synergistic weight loss, this weight loss is just additive. So the same as using the two individually, we don't get you know any additional weight loss in addition to that. Um, but the the pharmacologic combination of the two is really exciting um, because. The two medications work very differently in a way that's very complementary. One actually potentiates the other. So naltrexone is an opioid receptor antagonist, so it blocks the opioid receptor. It was approved in the 80s for opiate dependency and approved in the 90s for alcohol addiction. The other component of the medication is bupropion, which is a dopamine and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, which we talked about before in terms of drug-induced weight gain. Uh, depression, it was approved for in the 80s, and smoking cessation in the 90s. So naltrexone actually per, uh, potentiates a negative feedback loop of bupropion to make it work better. And the two work beautifully together because um, they bind to two areas of the brain. The hypothalamus, we didn't talk about it much today, but that's really the hunger center in the brain where most of the action is, where um, a lot of these medications end up uh, binding to. Um, the hypothalamus or hunger center, and then the mesolimbic reward center. So in the phase three trials looking at Contrave, uh, they actually looked at cravings as one of the outcomes and found that Contrave was associated with fewer cravings in patients who are taking it. So for patients who really describe sort of addictive food thoughts, we have some patients who have a hard time focusing at work because they're really you know, preoccupied by thoughts of food. So patients with any sort of addictive food behavior, um, even patients who have a family history of addiction, all of this runs in family. So, you know, somebody whose father had an alcohol um, addiction and they have more of a food addiction, this can be a really, really nice option. Uh, when we wouldn't use this, patients who have significant pain problems because... Um, now, trexone binds to the pain receptor and blocks it. So, if patients need an opioid for pain, it's not going to work as well. So, we tell patients when they're on this, if they have a dental procedure or colonoscopy, that we stop it before the procedure and restart it after. But unfortunately, sometimes if people have something unexpected, we've gotten angry calls from patients in the emergency room with a kidney stone, and morphine is just not working. So, that can, <laughs> that, that's a really a big disclaimer. Finally, the last medication is liraglutide, 3.0 milligrams. Um, Victoza is the same medication, liraglutide, FDA approved at a lower dose of 1.8 milligrams. This was FDA approved for diabetes in 2010. And patients who are taking Victoza for diabetes were found to lose significant weight, um, so it was developed at higher doses as a weight medication. Um, this was approved in 2014. It's a GLP-1 receptor agonist. So GLP-1 is one of the gut hormones that's produced when we eat. It's also one of the gut hormones that is increased after bariatric surgery. So one of the reasons why bariatric surgery works for weight loss significantly in the first year because GLP-1 goes up. Um, But what it does is it feeds back to the brain to signal satiety. So it tells the brain that we're full, that we've eaten. Um, It also uh, slows down gastric emptying. So patients not only feel less hungry, they feel full for longer. Um, it also acts on many other different um, organs. Um, very exciting news in this field that one of um, our own doctors here was involved in um, is the LEADER trial that was published a few years ago. So um, Dartmouth was a site for the LEADER trial, um, and it showed cardiovascular risk reduction in patients with diabetes who are taking liraglutide. So as of August 25th, um, that's an additional FDA indication for Victoza. So We're excited about using these medications in our patients with diabetes who um, are at cardiovascular risk. The doses range from 0.6 to 3 milligrams. Uh, when doctors are not familiar with um, the best way to use the medications, often we hear stories of patients being started on sexenda, following the rules, going up by 0.6 milligrams once a week, and getting to three milligrams, feeling very, very sick, and then feeling like it didn't work and stopping the medication. It can be very, very hard to tolerate at first um, if if it's titrated up too quickly. So we go very, very slowly and stay at the lowest dose necessary. So just as an overview. Um, Phentermine has been around for the longest. It is very inexpensive. It's generic. We see a lot of weight loss, but it can be a difficult side effect profile. Um, The combination of qsimia, we do get the most weight loss of the other medications, um, but it also can be very expensive. Sometimes what we'll do when it's not covered is to prescribe the two medications separately. Um, Lorcaster and Belviq also can be expensive, and unfortunately we have no generic that we can use at this point. Um, very good side effect profile, really just headache most of the time. Um, Orlistat don't really use because of the GI side effects. Contrave, um, great for food addictive personalities, good weight loss, um, but the side effect profile can be difficult and also can be expensive, so we do sometimes use the components separately. And then finally, Saxenda, Saxenda is the only medication that we use that's an injectable, so that can be a deal-breaker for some patients. Um, and it can be expensive if it's not covered. So sometimes we'll prescribe off-label Victoza as a way around it. We do what we can until the insurance companies start covering more of these medications. So responder analysis. This is an interesting slide just showing, again, the tremendous variability. So with any medication that we prescribe, you can see um, in blue we see about a 5% weight loss among about two-thirds to at least a third of the patients, but for some of the patients, it's just not going to work. Um, and then for some patients, they're, they're good responders to the medications, and we see you know, at least a 10% weight loss among a third to over half of the patients. So a lot of variability. Um, and when you look at average weight loss, it really doesn't tell you as much as looking at the range of um, how much people lost and looking at kind of the responder analysis um, in a way like this. So going back to our question, just to recap our patient with type 2 diabetes on metformin, hypertension, depression on fluoxetine, IBS, and kidney stones. Um, the, the answer seems pretty clear now that I think I've laid it out. Um, Saxenda is what we chose to do with her um, because of her diabetes, um, because of the great side effect profile. We did not use um, Belvique because she was also on an SSRI. I didn't use Orlistat because of her IBS. <laughs> And I didn't use Kusimia because she had kidney stones. But um, Saxenda was what we chose. So monthly visits again with me and the dietitian. We really reinforced everything she was doing with diet, exercise, lifestyle. We started her on a low-dose Saxenda, so 0.6 milligrams, and titrated her up to 1.2, which is usually where I stay until I see patients at the next visit. Um, After another six months, she lost another 32 pounds. So at this point, she was down 80 pounds from when I first saw her, um, and down 170 pounds from her high weight before surgery, so more than half of her body weight. Um, So she was a very, very good responder to everything that we were doing, a very motivated patient. Um, A1C actually normalized, so totally in the normal range, Um, but again, she reached a weight plateau. So at this point, um, at this weight plateau, She was very happy with the weight loss. We had really reversed a lot of her comorbidities. We discussed the idea of transitioning to the phase of weight maintenance. So weight maintenance, we continue to see patients frequently because weight maintenance is honestly harder than the weight loss to begin with. Um, We really, really reinforce lifestyle intervention. So we continue to have patients weigh themselves once a week. We continue to have them keep a food log if they're doing that. Um, We keep them on the medications. and we really, really, you know, optimize exercise. Exercise is a huge part of this. That unfortunately, I didn't have time to talk about today. But especially with weight maintenance, exercise becomes really important. If people don't do enough exercise, as they lose weight they lose about, and John can tell you more about this, they lose about a third, of, um, their, a third of the weight they lose is muscle. And that has implications in terms of their metabolic rate. So getting people involved in exercise early is important, and then especially for weight maintenance, really doing as much exercise as they can. If they can even an hour a day um, for some patients is what it takes to keep the weight off. So a significant amount of exercise. Um, let's look at a couple of other scenarios just as teaching points. If, let's say this patient had started at a much higher weight, and she had lost all of this weight, but she still wanted to lose more weight, what else could we do for her? So now she's on metformin, and she's on a low dose of liraglutide. We have plenty of room with liraglutide. We could go up if um, we decided to do that. Um, We could also at this point switch her from fluoxetine to bupropion. I was holding off on doing that because of her blood pressure, but now that her blood pressure is not an issue anymore, that could be a great option. Um, Or we could even switch her to the combo medication of bupropion and naltrexone together, so contrape. So many different options, and this is how we sort of think about stepwise how we approach what's going on. We you know, get patients to a plateau, figure out what to do to break through that plateau, get to the next plateau, and go from there. So personalized approach, every patient we see is extremely different, different set of challenges, different set of medications, different set of medical problems. Everything we do is really, really personalized. This was an article that was published about a year ago, oh, I'm sorry, it's not showing up very well, um, in the New York Times talking about the idea that with obesity medicine, that one size does not fit all. The patient on the top right, and I can tell you this is it's not a HIPAA violation because it's published in the New York Times, um, was one of our patients, or still is one of our patients. Um, He's the general manager of Zabar's, um, which if you've been to New York, you'll know that it's a high-end food store. So this patient came to us about a year ago, and he said, look, you know, for work, I'm around food all the time, I eat all the time, I like eating, I'm really not gonna change my diet very much, I can't change my diet very much, but his BMI was over 40, and he needed to lose weight. He was very unhealthy. Um, He thought that bariatric surgery was his only option, so what we did was we worked with him a little bit on diet to see what he would be willing to change around, Um, but we switched his medications. He was on a TZD for diabetes, and we got him off the TZD onto an SGLT2 inhibitor. We also started the medication Contrave, and he's now lost over 80 pounds just with changing around his medications, and not even changing his diet as much as he should, and as much as all of our patients should be, but he's done beautifully and avoided surgery with just the idea of changing around his medications. So very exciting case. So in conclusion, for all patients who you see with obesity or overweight with weight-related comorbidities, always, always, always go over the idea of diet, exercise, and behavioral change. But unfortunately, it's really important to recognize that for the majority of patients, this is not always enough. And a lot of patients have been blamed by doctors over the years. There's a lot of weight bias. Um, A lot of patients who don't understand that obesity is a disease. They've really given up. They've tried everything. It hasn't worked. So explaining to patients why this always is not enough and um, why obesity is a disease and um, what's going on physiologically that's really um, fighting their best efforts to lose weight can really help patients feel a lot better. So I spent a lot of time during my first visit really educating patients and explaining what's going on. Um, spending a lot of time with patients, looking at their medication list, you know, again, asking patients um, everything they're putting in their mouth. So not just what's prescribed, but medications that they're buying over the counter. As I mentioned before, Benadryl can be a huge offender. We have a lot of patients especially who do shift work and take Benadryl to help them sleep. Benadryl can cause a ton, a ton of weight gain. So getting people off Benadryl onto something like melatonin, which is more weight neutral, that can be a huge in- intervention in and of itself. Um, And then finally, considering the use of pharmacotherapy, devices, and or surgery, when all of the above is not enough. So thank you very much, and I'm happy to take questions.
0: (laughs) That's great, thank you, Catherine. That was a great overview, and I think a lot of good teaching and clinical pearls here. I would welcome any questions from the audience.
1: Yes, you Thank you. What's the longest you've seen somebody on medications, and do you think there's much practicality in trying to get people off medications if they've been successful? Yeah, so that that's a fabulous question, and I think every single patient. Or most patients who I start on medication say, do I have to take this forever, or how long is this going to be? Um, so Lou Aroni, who runs our practice, has been doing this for 30 years. And he has some patients who he helped lose weight in the first year of seeing them. And they keep coming back, even if it's only every six months, every year. But he's had patients on medications for 30 years. Um, unfortunately, as I discussed, the idea of weight maintenance is much, much, much harder than the weight loss to begin with. And because obesity is a chronic disease, I explained to patients that you know if they're on a medication that's helping them keep their weight down, it's the same thing as like stopping an antihypertensive. Their blood pressure is going to go back up or stopping a statin, their cholesterol is going to go back up. So what I usually do is I get patients to a weight where their comorbidities are improved, they're feeling better. um, And then we see kind of if we we watch them very closely. So have them weigh themselves all the time, keep a food log, come in more frequently um, and peel back and see what we can do in terms of reducing the dose. And if we reduce the dose or stop the medication, their weight goes up a little bit, but not a lot, then it's sort of a risk-benefit. There was actually a study that was done um, with fentramine in the 60s, so a really long time ago, but it showed that fentramine used every other day as opposed to used every day um, was just as effective. So sometimes you being really creative and doing something every other day or changing around the way we use medications. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. It's a risk-benefit. Yes? Um, from outpatient patient primary care perspective, um, as the insurance companies become more intrusive in their uh, prior authorization, yes. um, suggestions, how do you deal with it? How do you suggest we deal with it? That's a great question. Um, we are fortunate in our office this is all we do, so our medical techs um, are very good at um, doing the prior authorizations. We write a lot of letters to the insurance companies um, explaining why what we've uh, we think a certain medication is clinically indicated. Um, sometimes sending them a journal article explaining this. Unfortunately, for now, um, a lot of insurance companies just won't cover a lot of the medications because they're not recognizing obesity as a disease. So we finagle whatever we can. We use, you know, we use a lot of metformin, which is very expensive. Um, for acutemia, we use separate fentramine and topamax. Um, for contraindicated, we use separate uh, naltrexone and bupropion. Um as I mentioned, for Saxenda, we use a lot of Victoza. Um, so we just, we do what we can. It's hard. It's really frustrating.
0: Great. Rich, yes. An oft-debated and asked question is <clears throat> about the value of eating breakfast. Okay? Yes. And I know that there was a study that took people <clears throat> Ate breakfast or not, and randomized them and switched them over, Mm -hmm. and showed that it didn't really have
1: much of an effect. But what's your thought? What do you recommend about breakfast? That's a that's a great question. I love talking about breakfast. (laughs) I eat breakfast every day, but I think you know as with everything in this entire field, everybody is so different. And for some people, when they eat breakfast, they say they get more hungry. When some people eat breakfast, they get less hungry. And even if they're having a high protein breakfast, they still say they get more hungry. I don't know exactly how to explain that. So I really go, I really listen to what they're telling me. And if they're the kind of person who, you know, does not eat breakfast and thinks that that's helpful, then I'm not going to force them to eat breakfast. And I'll say maybe the first meal of the day, treat that like your breakfast and try to make that high in protein and no carbs. Um, There's also the idea of intermittent fasting, um, which we don't always suggest. The idea of intermittent fasting is what we do sometimes is take two days a week where they have, you know, 1,000 calories and then... That, it's, that makes it so that they can be a little bit more liberal on the other days. Or something that's akin to not having breakfast is the idea. Some people have all of their calories between, let's say, noon and 6 p.m. They don't let themselves eat between 6 p.m. and then noon the next day. And for some people, that works. So it's really it's trial and error. And I think the reason why we're seeing all this conflicting data with all these studies is because everyone's physiology is really different. And I think there's no there's no right answer. So I think it's really it's important to listen to patients and not tell everybody to do the same thing because that's that's not going to work.
0: Before I take one more question, just want to remind because we've got to announce the code for those who are not here, uh, ZG3U. Uh, so ZG3U is is the code today, Martha.
1: I was curious about how you go about
0: establishing a goal weight, because many patients feel that or believe that the thinner they are, the
1: healthier yeah. they are, and we know that that's not the case. Yes. Many physicians also seem to believe that. That's a great question. Yeah. And I'm sorry that my example, she actually did get down to a regular weight. A lot of our patients don't. So and she was, she's a little bit of an outlier. She's done tremendously well and gotten to, you know, BMI of twenty five. Um, I tell patients that our bodies really count backwards, so somebody, two people with a BMI of 30, one who's lost 100 pounds to get to 30, and one who's at their high weight of 30, physiologically are extremely different. Um, We count backwards, so we try to keep it in perspective for patients and, you know, have them understand how hard it is to lose weight in the first place. The studies actually show that 5-10% of body weight... um, is really enough for most people in order to really improve a lot of comorbidities. So, we kind of take it step by step. We aim for 5 to 10% with all patients if we can, and then if they can go beyond that, great. And then it's again, it's a risk benefit. Do we want them on four medications at a lower weight or do we want them on, you know, one medication at a higher weight? So, it's it's really different for everybody, but we absolutely do not do not aim for a BMI of 25 in all patients. Yeah, good question. Well,
0: we want to thank you. We're hitting our, our limit on time. Here, I can so. say
1: if people want to come yeah, if up. Yeah, anyone wants I'm to come so down. Thank you very much.